So what are you drinking? Uh, I'm moving on to the Double Double Oak, but I was drinking the Fancy Blantons from Japan. Yeah, because normally to be like Chinese medicine themed, I've been drinking herbal wine during this podcast, but I figured since we're talking about Kentucky, we'd switch over to bourbon. I'm doing grandma's favorite, Basil Hayden's. <laughs> oh, it's a new year. Gongxi fa cai. Oh, jin nian kai la. Are you excited about the year of the ox? The fun thing about this podcast is I think you know a lot about me going into it, and I identify as an ox. And so I'm fucking pumped. And to answer your question, I've got my red undies on. Uh, that was actually going to be my question is, did you buy red underwear? Or actually, I think you can't buy your own red underwear. Did Karen buy you? Did Karen you buy, buy your, your red? own? Karen bought me. So I invested. I'm that person that is, uh, I have to, like, if I have a coffee mug, I forget it somewhere. So I have to have like 64 coffee mugs strategically placed. So I ended up having bought for me a whole bunch of the red wristbands. No, so now it's like, I have my wristband at work, and I have my wristband at home, and there's two in the car, and there's three in each treatment room, so I can't fucking get hit by a meteor, hopefully. Are you afraid of the year of the ox? Are you excited, or are you, does it freak you out? You know, so I think as an oxen, since we love like work and torture and pain and lamentation, I'm fucking pumped. Like, I'm so fucking pumped. I was reading about the ox not too long ago, and it's like, where do you find the ox? Oh, he's in the field, looking at the storm coming, thinking, oh, weather it, moo. So I'm like, I'm, I'm excited for this shit. So what's the year of the ox going to be like? I mean, not for you, but for everybody. Uh, so stability is the, the major core concept for it. Which is something we need right now. Right? And that's kind of that's what I think is going to be the most important takeaway from it. The, if you think of ox people... Don't think of me because I have two very pretentious rooster pillars. <laughs> and so those get in the way. But most ox people, you know, they like keep to themselves. They're very, they do their due diligence. They study hard. They keep quiet. They do their work. And it's like, yeah, I think we all need to just shut the fuck up and go home. Chill the fuck out. Quit talking. That was the second bourbon. The most excited thing about the year of the ox for me is that People should shut up and go to work. And I'm really excited about that. Do you think you're going to work until you die? I will work until I fucking die. I hope I'm taking somebody's pulse and just kick over dead there. Yeah, no, even my retirement plan involves only cutting back 50%. But anyways, something that me and Karen tell each other literally three or four times a week is people pay us for this. Like people literally come in and they pay me to do this shit. And it blows my mind. Hey, we have a podcast. I'm here with Patrick Gitley from Meridian Acupuncture and Herbal Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky. So up to now, we've been talking to people about what it's like to start a practice, but we've mostly been talking to practitioners located in Southern California. So now we finally have a chance to talk to someone about what it's like to start a practice not in California. So Patrick, thank you for being here. Oh, so excited to be here. This is going to be a rough evening. <laughs> All right, so some backstory for those who don't know us. Uh, both you and I went to school in San Diego, and you were like a year or two ahead of me. And after you graduated, you went back to your hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, and you started an acupuncture practice there. And so I got to be honest, 
after you left, I had a lot of people coming up to me and being like, whatever happened to that Patrick kid? And I'd be like, oh, he went to Louisville, Kentucky and started an acupuncture practice. And they would laugh. They'd be like, Louisville, Kentucky? Who's going to get acupuncture in Louisville, Kentucky? Like, good luck with that. So what has it been like having an acupuncture practice in Louisville, Kentucky? So first of all, Louisville. <clears throat> so I think there's uh, pros and cons of having an acupuncture practice in a, in a metropolitan, highly populated coastal city or somewhere where acupuncture is widely known. And then having a having an acupuncture clinic in the backwater nowheres of the Midwest flyover states, which, I'm, which I might consider Louisville. Yeah. Uh, do people think you're like a voodoo priest or something? Mm. So I definitely get the voodoo priest thing. Uh, we, get a, we get a lot of very interesting questions. On the, on the monthly, I get the, does this work on Catholics? So I enjoy that one a lot. I, um, I just, maybe in the last two weeks, a lot of my, like not a lot of my clientele, like maybe two or three people a week, which is a surprising amount for me, started coming out as QAnon. So that pretty much blew my mind. I don't think you get a lot of that in San Diego. Actually, I did, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the pros of running a clinic in, like, say, Southern California is like population density. There's a ton of people, right? So you can sustain a massive amount of acupuncturists. You can have a really good following of people in the area who might not have gotten acupuncture, but definitely know what it is and know that it's something that you can turn to. And that is legitimately the opposite in the Midwest. Uh, I definitely get the voodoo doctor thing. People are highly suspect, right? The, the thing that I think comes in the form of a pro about it though, is if you get the one person, the word of mouth community style system that works here is dramatically different than say any other big city that I've ever seen. So I get the I get the one person, I get the family, right? Or I get the one person, I get the whole office. The the word of mouth is taken very serious here. And if you are honest and straightforward with people, that goes dramatically further than I think it did in in San Diego specifically. So did you have to do a lot of patient education where a lot of people were really skeptical and you really had to convince them that this was a real thing? So I think legitimately my full-time job is, in fact, patient education, which, as you know, I don't mind because I just shoot the shit on this all day long anyways. And all I like to do is like get super technical and discuss the ins and outs of acupuncture. But every single new patient, every time you're spending a percentage of each treatment talking to them specifically about things from the perspective of a new person, right? No education in the medicine looks completely crazy. But after you did that education, were people pretty receptive to it? Were they open to it? I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna reference this thing a whole bunch during this talk. But it's. Uh, I, I think it would go with if if it works, they're completely on board, right? If they come in and their their sciatica is a ten out of ten, they don't give a shit what you do as long as you make it better. And if you're honest with them and tell them like, hey, I'm gonna get it thirty percent better the first time or fifty percent, and then it's gonna take me you know, three visits, four visits overall, it's going to be two months, but it goes the way you're telling them, then they're a patient for life and they trust you with anything and they'll bring you the next problem that comes. So like results, the results speak for themselves? I think that that's real true of a lot of problems in the medicine. I think that like it, to some extent, you're, you're not, you're not waving a magic wand, but you're kind of doing voodoo shit. Right? Like to us, there's things that make super straightforward sense. It's like, oh, they got this headache and lung tin worked because it was uh, on the tie-in meridian. 
But to everybody on the outside world, that looks like wild shit. And so if it works, if I put a needle nowhere near their head, like their gallbladder 41 and their migraines went away, then they are sold and they are happy. And when they come next time and I say, oh, no, that's not a urinary tract infection. In fact, that's heart pouring out of your heat through the small or heat pouring out of your heart through the small intestine. They're like, I don't know, whatever this guy says. This is my guy. You, you do the thing. No. So that's even something that students ask me a lot is, is it worth it to stay in California? Is the market saturated or should you move somewhere else with less market saturation? And I feel like there are pros and cons there where somewhere like California, there are a lot of acupuncturists, but there are also a lot of people who are interested in acupuncture and already know where what it is. Whereas if you go to somewhere like Kentucky, it's people don't really know what acupuncture is, but you're also the only acupuncturist in town. So it's kind of like a trade-off there. Right. So I think I think in Southern California or a place where it is more established for a longer amount of time, you as a, as a new acupuncturist, you're going to see more patients off the bat, right? You're going to have people kind of searching it out. If you open up, your next door neighbor is going to come in, that kind of thing. Whereas in Kentucky or like basically anywhere in the Midwest, First, you're going to be open. You're going to be forced to kind of open up your own storefront. There are not a lot of people looking to hire acupuncturists because it's just not as sustainable as it is. You're not going to join a practice, right? <clears throat> so you're you're opening up your own shop, and then you're trying to procure your own patients because you might have one or two walk in through the door, but you're not going to have this kind of high volume seeking out. And then you you had better have a strategy of capturing those patients and then having them come back or having a, a stream of new patients coming in because you need the sustainability of, you know, finances to keep your storefront open. So I think it's it's trickier in some ways, but easier in others. The I, I see the patient relationships that I have is a lot easier in, in Kentucky rather than California, but that might work for me and might not work for other people, or it just might be a pro that I find that other people don't. So patient referrals worked really well for you? Patient, uh, so we <clears throat> we have done no advertisement. I think one time I got drunk and boosted a post on Facebook, but I think it was just a picture of me holding a wulaw, and I thought that was pretty sweet. So we we've been open now t- eight years, and not once have we advertised to be in the the magazine or the Yelp or the or the whatever. And for me, that is kind of like back to that ox nature thing, that keeps me honest. It keeps me true. So my my opinion is if I show up to work and I do a good job, I learn my craft and you get better, you are going to want to keep my doors open. And this is something I find true in Kentucky where I have patients that are like, nope, I'm sending you neighbors. I'm sending you the people on the volleyball team. I'm sending you grandma because I want you to be in business. And if I do a poor job, you are going to forget about me and not want me to be in business and I'm going to go bye-bye. So that is in some ways <clears throat> in some ways i can see it being very difficult for people but for me it it means that i'm doing a good job i i suffer when i do not have customer service or my customer service is poor which it is like we we all have good days and bad days and there's definitely things that i've said or done in the clinic that you know are controversial one of the beautiful things that i've seen is in kentucky at least for me I don't have to advertise. I do a good job. I like prescribe my herbs. I do my diagnosis. I run my acupuncture treatments. People get better and then they come back and they bring other people. And I, and I don't have to do the advertisement game, although I don't think the advertisement game is wrong. Like I don't, I don't have anything against it. I just think that 
maybe in the Midwest, you don't need it as much. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like it's the opposite in California. Like in California, there were times where it's like I'd have patients say, oh, yeah, I handed out five of your business cards. Did anybody call you? And I'd be like, no, nobody called me. So I feel like referrals are really hard in California. But when I was in Kentucky, it's like, yeah, you treat one person for plantar fasciitis and suddenly the entire factory floor is coming to see you. And I feel like that's just not how it works in California. No, and it's wild because Louisville, <clears throat> so we have a university here, the University of Louisville, and it's very medically oriented. We're like a unique city in the Midwest that we have 26 hospitals in our metropolitan area. And our metropolitan area is probably like, I'm, I'm making this up, but one sixteenth the size of San Diego. So you have a plethora of people here taking pills, getting procedures, knowing surgery is the only option, doing what their doctors tell them, seeing everything and every specialty in the Western medical allopathic side of things. And if you can offer somebody a viable treatment modality that works, is not tremendously expensive but sustainable, then you can kind of, you know, honestly just have them for life. And they're going to bring you like, I have people that I've treated for years now and they bring me kids. I have fertility cases that we helped with to get the kid here. And now we see the kid for acupuncture. So it's a, it's a, it's a wild ride. Yeah. I feel like Jeffrey Ewan mentioned that once where he was like, I started out as a women's health specialist. And if you do that long enough, you eventually become a fertility specialist. And if you do that long enough, you eventually become a pediatric specialist. So, and you should, it makes the most sense. Are you into the integrative medicine? Do you get a lot of referrals from MDs? Okay. So Within my background, I grew up in Louisville. I got a degree from the University of Louisville in biology with an emphasis on chemistry and physics. I was on that, I was that classical acupuncture student where I was going to be a real doctor. And then I ended up getting acupuncture and it worked out and blew my mind and like turned my world upside down because it was like doing things that aren't biologically sound. But in that time while I was in college, I worked in a hospital. I was an ER technician and a dialysis tech. So I had a really good infrastructure of the vocabulary and dealing with people in that world, right? I know a lot of doctors. I know a lot of nurses and admin, and I still have those really good connections. And those have brought me a ton of patients who are actually local doctors, who would not have come and seen me other than the fact that they knew me before, but then those generated referrals to other doctors. In fact, the guy that just did my vasectomy, it was one of my patients, and it was on the table that we scheduled the whole thing. So it, it blows my mind that even in the Midwest, it's starting to become more of a thing where they're, they're reaching out in that direction and, and wanting to understand it a little better because they can't deny it anymore. They're seeing more and more evidence and that kind of thing. Now, whether or not I really like to integrate the medicines, I am all about proper diagnostics. So when somebody comes in, if they're, if they're showing me any red flag or any kind of symptomology, I will immediately or gladly tell them, it's like, nope, you want an MRI. Or if somebody comes in with things that are looking like a, a really good herniated disc or something, I'll tell them, you know, these are, if this is a herniated disc, we can treat this within the realm of Chinese medicine and it's a great idea. You might want to get an MRI or see a physician because you might just want the paperwork in your background, right? You might want an accurate diagnosis. But then, as you know, 
I kind of like to just be barefoot, right? Like I literally don't wear shoes in the clinic and I enjoy that rougher side of things. The, the idea that's, that I, or the, the thing that I see a lot within Chinese medicine, especially in Louisville is if you've made it to my table, if you've walked through the doors of my clinic, you've been through allopathic medicine, right? You've been, you've been down the, the Planko board of all the things that Western medicine can offer you. So now I can shake a dead chicken over you, right? I can, I can give you a crazy diagnosis and feed you to be a chong and you're not going to argue with me because you've been to the PT and you've been to the osteopath and done the surgery and done the thing. So I'm happy in that I'm competent with speaking their language and generating uh, a dialogue and a discourse between the two worlds. But hell no, I'm going to be barefoot. I'm going to give them sticks and shit. Yeah, because I feel like when people talk about integrative medicine, sometimes they're talking about two different things. Sometimes we're talking about patients receiving both Western care and traditional care. And I think they even do that in China, where you can get an MRI and then you can go get acupuncture. But other times when people are talking about integrative medicine, they're talking about, oh, I'm going to check your thyroid levels and diagnose kidney yang deficiency based on that. Or they're like, I'm going to do blood function test or I'm going to check your cholesterol. Oh, you have cholesterol. That means you have dampness in your body. Right. So I, I don't know that I would say that I take offense to it, but at least the way that I practice, I love it when people bring in labs or I love it when people have been working with me and go get labs. I often tell people it's like when it comes to Western medicine, I love the diagnostic process. I mean, like I can take your pulse and tell you all kinds of interesting things about you and your tongue looks a certain way to me, but they can look inside your body, right? And that's like a very powerful tool. But then the minute that they want to treat is when I would apply the brakes. So I would say it, in my practice, in my realm, it's an issue if you come to me with paperwork that says you have high cholesterol, but the signs and symptoms don't point me in a direction to give you, you know, a treatment or an herb that treats the cholesterol. However, the vice, the vice versa makes sense to me, right? If you come to me and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing this as kidney yang deficiency and we do these things and three months later their thyroid levels regulated, then it's like as long as I applied the appropriate diagnosis – be it any, it, like it doesn't have to be Zong Fu, right? But if it's in your bag of tricks and the, and the diagnosis was accurate, then sure. In fact, the Western medical allopathic diagnostics should confirm that you did the right thing. So in terms of getting patients, you said referrals worked really well for you. What are some other things that worked or didn't work for you in terms of getting new patients through the door? So this is a really good list. I've, uh, I've been thinking about this all day. Yeah, it's just doing a good job. And you can... You can get me to go into that more if you like, but so so I think step one is uh, you're you're like you're there when you tell the patient you're there, or you answer the phone when the prospective patient calls, and then uh, you're cognizant and holding space when you're meeting the patient. So being good at what you do involves like showing up and good customer service and stuff like that. I like, I don't, I'm, I don't joke around when I say do a good job, right? But this isn't just the, um, this isn't just the give a good treatment thing. Giving a good treatment is part of it, right? But I, I, hang on, sorry. I'm going to give you a good one here. Okay. But I think it was Sun Sun Miao in the Beiji Qianji Yao Feng said, even a dumb motherfucker can move chi, right? So, I think when I say do a good job, I think 
anybody doing acupuncture has the potential to fix a problem, right? They can, they can move energy, but doing a good job is the, the book ends to living the life and running that business, right? You had better make sure that your chi is present. You had better make sure that your chi is as healthy as it can be. If you're the person that owns the shop, you had better open the door and you had better lock it, sweep the floor, make sure there's not trash there, right? Be present, hold space with the patient, listen to the patient. And I mean that in like the the crazy five element kind of listen to the patient way. But then it is, you know, deliver the treatment. If the treatment's good, if you were honest and true to the patient, if the patient gets better or at least improves in some way, then that's the most important take home of the day. So, and that's why I see one of the, one of the most beautiful things within Chinese medicine is this idea of all the different lineages, right? It's like martial arts. There's all these different schools of thought. To me, it's a lot like the, uh, the Renaissance paintings, right? I love the Renaissance, man, and the Dutch masters too. Well, the, one of the interesting things about them is they've all done a Madonna and child, right? You see it immediately. You're like, oh, that's Jesus. But they're all different. And pretty much none of them look the same. It's just a chick with a veil and a baby who often has the adult head. But we know what they are because they're carrying out these tenets of the art. And it's the same within Chinese medicine, right? You've got Zong Fu people. You've got Five Element people. You have Korean hand acupuncture. You've got Tan method, uh, Japanese, all the things. And it seems like all of the people that are the, the top in their fields do a really good job and give these amazing treatments. And that's the beauty of it. We can, we can paint with different brushes and we can make different strokes. But at the end of the day, we can still deliver this like life-changing event for people. And to me, as long as you're staying true to your art and doing that thing, and it can involve crystals and it can involve Reiki and all these things, but as long as you show up, hold space, and do the work, then you're, you're doing a good job. So in there, you talked about protecting your own chi. And this is something that a listener actually emailed me a question and wanted to ask, what kind of things do you do to protect your chi or not get burnt out or things like that? Do you do do certain things to protect yourself from the evil influences of the patients you see? So I'm going to break this into two parts. And if I'm I'm wasted and and I can't think of the second part, you got to remind me. So, yeah, I I think this is an integral part. And I think the first part of this is lifestyle practices for you, the practitioner. So, you know, from your experience with me that I'm like extremely pretentious about classical literature within the medicine. Yes. Well, it's, it's my favorite part about the medicine is that like bygone era, the classical times, the forgotten text kind of thing. So the longer that I have been in practice... The things that I have found to be the most important are the hardcore lifestyle practices of Yangsheng for people. And even that you can break up into multidisciplinary things, right? And there's like yoga in there and like the five frolics of the animal qigong and all that really cool stuff. <clears throat> but if we take a if we take a note from our boy Ling Li Dongyuan, we see that the the earth element, the postnatal qi, is he the right one? I think it's Li Dongyuan. Yeah, the Pi Wei Lun. Yeah, the Pi Wei Lun. So if we take a if we take a, a text from Li Dongyuan, we learn that the the postnatal qi is the super important thing, right? And like everything after your birth has to go through the digestive tract, and it's where the source of blood and qi come from. To to me in my practice, and maybe just me as a person, this becomes the most important piece of Yangsheng for people. I probably spend the most 
most hours of my day describing to people how to eat correctly, right? Because it's a, it's a no-brainer to me that if you're putting trash in, you had better expect trash. Uh, it's also a no-brainer to me that if I'm doing some weird esoteric voodoo medicine that's subtle, right, that I need their chi to be the most righteous that it can be for me to look good. And in order for that to happen, I need their body to like be as less inflamed as it can be, right? And I'm going to help that with acupuncture herbs or whatever, but I need them to do everything they can on their side. So probably the most important thing that I see in the beginning is educating the patient on the tenets of the Piwe Lun, maybe just going over with them the importance of like, this is why we don't eat sugar and this is, this is why we don't create dampness, that bourbon's kicking and I'm trying to forget my train of, I'm trying to figure out my train of thought. <clears throat> so as, so me as a practitioner, that's one of the most important things that I do. So I'm your like very stereotypical eats paleo most of the time, doesn't drink bourbon most of the time, does these things that att- attempt to build as much chi and blood as possible. And then live that lifestyle because I want people to see that we have a, we have everything in our clinic is open, like uh, not the treatment rooms, but the, the front of the clinic, right? And the herb room specifically, because I want people to be integrated into it. I want them to see it. I want to see them like getting bugs out of jars and sticks and mixing things and cooking. I want the smell to be in the air. One of the things we have in our clinic is a stove and we cook our lunch every day. I'll roast a sweet potato, right? I'll put greens in it. I'll let them see that it's like, these are the things that are so easy because people, people complain to me a lot about, well, I can't do this at work, right? This meal prep is too complicated. So it's, you have to teach them, you have to show them. And that's, that's the most important part. So that's the first part of your question. So now the second one, I think, uh, I think we're getting it like, uh, is there evil chi going to jump off the body and into me? Well, I, I had better hope that my Wei Qi is real strong, first of all, right? Because it's at least got to get through that. So like back to the paleo diet, right? Let's uh, keep that Wei Qi real strong. And then am I like necessarily taking herbs or special things? No. Am I putting crystals under the pillow? I don't know. There's crystals in our shop, but I don't know that it's the primary defense mechanism. But I think maybe even at some point just holding the space in your mind that you are... Fuck, I hate this question. Yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, I, I no, have no but, uh, answer for that. I guess I was thinking it sounds like for you it's not about doing a ritual or wearing a crystal around your neck. It's just about yangshen and building up your own uh, right. jiangqi and that protects you from other people. Right, exactly. And I don't, I don't know that you necessarily have to do more than that until a possession walks in the door. And then you had better be trained in a lineage extremely well to deal with not only knocking the possession out of the person, but then what to do with it afterwards. Yeah, because and I feel like there are multiple levels of that where it's like I feel like on some level, sometimes it's just like there some patients are emotional vampires or they're just their energy gets you down. And then on the other hand, I do know people that they're like. I caught this patient's chi, that this patient came in with elbow pain, and as soon as I started treating them, I got elbow pain. Has anything like that happened to you? So it was my, my very first experience within Chinese medicine was uh, dramatically before I went to PCOM. I, I lived in China, and I was getting a minor in the language. And I was already very interested in Chinese medicine and in the the minor program I was in, we, I lived in Beijing and our job was to translate a book. And so I, we had the medical library there, but like 
the old school medical library. And I, I got the opportunity to translate part of the, the Ling Shu and the Su One and reading about it and reading about the things. So then I would go to the medical textbook store and I would get acupuncture. I got their version of Dead Men, like the points catalog. <clears throat> and you can just buy needles. They'll just sell them to white people on the street there, which is pretty cool. And there was a little Japanese girl that lived in the, the dormitory across the hall from mine. And she had TMJ. And I treated the TMJ and got the TMJ. And whether or not her, like, she she like crawled through the needle and up my arm and into my mandible. You know, maybe it did, and that might be something that I'm willing to accept one day. Maybe it's completely psychosomatic, or maybe those two aren't too different. You want the story of the beads, motherfucker, and you're not getting the story of the beads. Yeah, no, no, I don't necessarily need the beads. No, I was kind of thinking of, like, this is going to sound really hippie-ish, but I was kind of thinking of a five-element practitioner that we know, that I remember somebody asked him this question, and he said... Yes, I do have a little talisman that I wear around my neck, but that's really just because it was a gift from a patient. But really, the way I protect my chi is, this sounds kind of Albus Dumbledore-ish, but he was kind of like, love is the most powerful force there is. So if you approach that, if you approach the patient with love, then that will protect you. Right. Like, don't, like, don't hold a space for it. Like, I can, I can completely see that. And I can see somebody that, like, doesn't take care of their body, doesn't keep their jung chi up, runs ragged, becoming more sickly more often in that kind of situation. But I don't know if I'm willing to talk about all this love in my heart kind of thing. So I think I went on some drunken tangent, but but before we were talking about what kind of things work to get patients in the door. So referrals, doing a good job. Were there any other things like is social media a big thing? Is going to health fairs a big thing? You said you didn't advertise. Are there any things that so we didn't advertise. <clears throat> we we maintain social media accounts, but I just uploaded the image for the ox year, and I and I saw next to it the image for the rat year. So that's not working out too well. <clears throat> and then, so then we keep a we keep a Facebook right, and sometimes I just accidentally like comment on people's normal things, but as the business, so that's not a good one for me either. So unfortunately, I'm going to circle back to do a good job. We did the health fair and I hate it. It's not for me. I'm just, I I can't sell myself like the medicine sells itself. So I work better in that because everyone we did, it didn't amount to anything. How long did it take you to start earning money and be like, I have a successful practice? What do you define as a successful practice? How long was it before you were able to pay your bills and feel like I'm not poor? Uh, Day one. Uh, not poor. Okay. Not poor, dramatically different. Pay your bills day one. So when we opened our practice, we all, so there were four of us. And one of the main things that we kind of negotiated when starting the practice was that we were all going to have a a real job, right? So we found the space, we gutted the space. My, my background in my family, they flipped homes. So it was easy for me to procure a contractor and I worked with him to build the space to save money. So we found a space, we flipped the space, I got my job back at the hospital, and the other three practitioners each got jobs at like different respective places, not acupuncture, right? So, and then we would trade off on working, you would have your normal work days at your regular job, your like real non-acupuncture job, and then you would have your real work days at the acupuncture job, and we basically dumped all of the money made from the acupuncture clinic into the acupuncture clinic. So it technically paid its bills from day one. And this was something that I was able to find 
easy with multiple practitioners, but I do think that this is the same method as like the, the massage therapist who uses massage to, to bolster the income until the acupuncture gets successful. Um, I would say it, it did not take long for us. I mean, like under a year before we were, we had, we quit our other jobs and were all full time at the acupuncture clinic. And then that has just grown since. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask is when you were able to quit those other jobs, it was like a year. Right. It was about a year. And, and I believe the, I believe the tenants of the one year, the three year and the five year and the six year, like you, you don't have a ton of money until your third year. And you're wondering, I was like, Oh my God, look, I've got money and I can go do things. I would say that's true as a, I'm going to go back to this as like, as being an ox it is very uncomfortable for me to be in debt. And I was in, you know, the PCOM debt of doom. And so I leveraged everything that I could to pay as much of that down as possible. And part of this is like unfair because I, I was able to like rent a home at an extremely cheap price. Like I basically lived with my parents and paid their mortgage. And so it was, it was significantly easier for me, but it allowed me to pay down debt as quickly as possible. Because that's what I was wondering about is I've talked to a lot of people in California where it seemed like it took them three years was the magic number. After three years, they felt like they were making money. It like took them three years to get their practice off the ground. And so I'm wondering if that's something that's shorter when you're not in California, if people are able to get their practice off the ground in a shorter amount of time, not in California. So I feel like, so I'm from Louisville and I definitely had a bunch of people who knew me but I don't think that that translated into a massive amount of patients in the door paying customers, right? So I would say I can I can get on board for the three-year idea um, because I did have the advantage of like, I knew everybody here and we were pretty much the only show in town. We were the new show in town. It was often referred to as like, we're the new guard, we're leaving the old guard because there were probably a dozen acupuncture clinics, but they were all actually unlicensed because Kentucky didn't require licensing at the time. And so they were doing a lot of different things, not just acupuncture, like a lot of chiropractors. So we were the new guard. We were young. It was kind of like we, we opened up shop in a hip part of town, that kind of thing. So I can get on board with the three year. And then the, for me, the idea is actually stability, like uh, consistently paying rent easily, having next month's rent already paid for at the beginning of like the previous month. Uh, being able to pay my mortgage, saving money, that kind of thing. That in between the years three and year five came. And that was going to be a question that I wanted to ask Karen, but maybe you can answer this question. Because like when you moved to your hometown, it's like you had the hometown advantage, you knew people, you had a job there before, but Karen moved there with you and it was a completely new city. And so how did that work for her trying to build a patient or trying to build clientele when it was completely new and she knew nobody there. So for, for those listening that don't know, uh, me and my wife met at Pacific College and her name's Karen Aladdin. She was in Nicholas's class, which I believe was a year behind mine. And I moved home first to start the practice and then she moved home. And you're right, she was the, the definitive fish out of water. She was from a very populated area, D.C., moving to, you know, podunk, backwater, Louisville, Kentucky. The issue that I take with that question is it's going to be difficult for people that don't own the shirt. I know Karen Aladdin because Karen is kind of like this 
elemental force to reckon with. She is dramatically good at customer relations. And so if Karen went to yoga, the entire yoga school then came to get acupuncture. So numbers-wise, she's just it's unconquerable. She just blows me out of the water and it's very embarrassing because her rapport with people is just second to none. And I feel like for, for people graduating school, like not just because of Karen's case, but for people graduating now, rapport is probably the most important thing. You, you want your patients to believe you and you want them to trust you because they're coming to you blind, right? And they're saying, heal me, I'm wounded. And they're laying it all out on the table raw. And if they don't know you and they don't trust you, I think that that's extremely difficult. And Karen has an uncanny ability to like get the masses. So for her, it was not difficult at all. She got a job at Trader Joe's and we automatically started seeing every employee of Trader Joe's and then random people that were just shopping at Trader Joe's that overheard the other Trader Joe's employees talking. Yeah, and I think I've heard you say that before is that you treat your patients like family and that's really important. So I'm very one of my one of my biggest downfalls in whoever writes the uh, the book on Patrick is going to be his boundary issue. So I I am that person that is very bad at boundaries. And I like I try to make my boundaries better, but I want our patients to be integrated into the life of our clinic. I want them to <clears throat> I want them to see the inner workings of it. I want them to understand what they're doing. I want like I have our kids there barefoot on the floor with me. I want them to see that we're just people within we're not like high and mighty the sage on the mountain. There's nothing mystical. We're not hiding anything. To me that is ultimately important. And I do not think that that is necessarily wise for everybody. Like I think boundaries are boundaries are extremely important and I like just have an issue with it. I was going to say has that ever caused problems be in the clinic or between you oh, and your hell patients? Oh yeah, of course it is. Absolutely. People get too close with an energetic medicine, you're going to have people that they think you saved their life and they want to be bonded to you at the hip and I still have to deal with these people. But yeah, I think I would actually use Karen as an example of like, she's the queen of networking. It's like when she got pregnant and she went to the prenatal classes, it's like everybody came in. After she had a baby, she went to the diaper fairy cottage. All the people came in. She got a lactation consultant. All the people came in for (laughs) lactation. All she does is steal my patients too. They're just like, who's that? Why is she so bright and wonderful and love emanates from her? And I'm like, do you even know who you're talking about? We have this, we have this joke, right? Because we, me and her ultimately are just a team. Like it's, we both have strengths and we both have weaknesses. So I don't know if you're familiar with the tenets, the, the art of Bushido, but there's multiple different like arts that are within it, not just drawing a sword and being a samurai, right? There's like mm-hmm. a flower arrangement and all these writing calligraphy haikus, and stuff calligraphy. Like that, yeah. So I'm, I'm really into the, the tenets of Bushido and all this stuff. And some of it, I, I'm just shit at it. Right. But it's those things that I'm the worst in that she's the best in. So me and her have this joke with each other that together we are one samurai and it works for it works for us being a couple, but there's no way if people look at our practice and say that we're successful, there's no way I could be successful without her. And it is that that networking ability. I mean, she gives a mean treatment too. She can she can raise Lazarus, and I don't doubt it. But it's like her her shun is so bright that it can bring those people. 
Oh, that's so fucking adorable. You're like yin and yang. You're like, you complete God. me. I want to say this in a respectful way. You're pretty successful, right? I mean, it's like we don't have to get into the specifics of your financials, but you all make pretty good money, right? We make dramatically good money. Yeah, because that's like sometimes I get a lot of students coming to me and they're like, can you actually make money doing Chinese medicine or am I going to be in debt forever? And so sometimes I think of you and your practice as an example of you're someone who's been able to make a lot of money doing acupuncture. But I also feel like you're one of the people who really treats it like a business. So, and that was something that I did not foresee or realize, but I really enjoy business negotiation tactics, applying the art of war to every example you can come up with in business. I find that stuff fascinating and very intense. So I would say that most people would look at our practice and see something that's extremely successful. And I, and I don't doubt it, right? I just think that there's different ways to define success. I think that <clears throat> if somebody was like, well, what do I need to do? What book do I need to read? What pilgrimage do I need to go on? What ancient master do I need to translate? If you are stepping out of school or entering school or you're in your first couple years of an acupuncture practice, I think that in America – you have to have an emphasis on business. You have to be very tactical with your money. You have to know where to invest it in your infrastructure, where to use it, when not to spend it. You cannot achieve glory at this job without a very good plan, and you have to stick to it. So you can, like, the... I want to see how I want to say this without being a dick. I kind of just want to give examples, but... Yeah, no, because I was I was going to be like, I don't want to make you out to be like a greedy capitalist, but you're like you're sound you're sounding pretty you cutthroat should. right now. You should, but but I do think that it's like not only did you work hard, you were talking about in the beginning, you all had second jobs, you slept on the floor of your clinic or some shit like that, but not only did you put a lot of effort into the beginning, but you definitely have a very practical approach of this is a service, and that service costs money. Right. So I have never, so I have given away a lot of treatments and I, I consistently still to this day will treat people for free based, not, not people that walk in the door, but it's like if people I know, right. Or people that have come to me for years for herbs, right. Consistently every week coming in for herbs for six, seven years. And they present with a problem that I know can't be treated without acupuncture, but they can't afford it. Maybe I'll think of like giving them the one free treatment kind of thing. So I'm, I'm not against that model and I'm not necessarily against the sliding scale model. I mean, so I am against the sliding scale model, but <clears throat> I would say that you, for me, it was never an issue of what we should charge. It was an, or that what we charge is not fair but it was an issue to come up with what we think is fair and sustainable for people. So I, I do agree. I do agree that you have to charge enough for people to respect it, right? You have to, they have to come and they have to say, my shit hurts and I am going to fork over, we charge 80 bucks. So it's like, I'm going to fork over $80 and I'm going to come as many times as this person wants to see me because they are going to significantly improve my life and improvement in my life is worth money, right? So I, I want that person and I 
with $80, especially in the Midwest, which I think is, I think for Kentucky, it's, it's not, I mean, there's people here that charge $120, but in my mind, I'm kind of like you, I'm like, I would probably not spend more than $80 on acupuncture and I make enough money. But I think that you have to, one, aim the price at what you think you are worth, two, show respect to the patient and that I'm not charging you $500. And then the patient must show you respect and that they are willing to pay it, right? And then we, at our clinic, we have a full raw herbal pharmacy. So all the, all the jars with all the herbs and the sticks and the bugs, right? So if somebody comes in and they've got a legitimate problem and they, for them, acupuncture is not sustainable at $80, it allows us a way to still treat them for significantly reduced prices. And we have a lot of patients that do herbs. We cook the herbs for people, which is extremely labor intensive. And if you were to apply the time to it, we're losing. But in the long run, I feel like we're gaining because the person's getting better and they're going to come back for more herbs. And at some point, somebody's going to be like, where did your, I'm not going to say any conditions, go. And they're going to tell them where it went, and then that person's going to come. So I, I have no issue being very straightforward with people. We have people that try to haggle with us all the time. I won't do it. It's, it, it's dis, I feel that it's disrespectful for me or to me, and that's just an issue that I take with it. So that is where I don't have a boundary, and I will stand ground. I don't know if I want to say this or not. I feel like I have some people that it's like, they're just hippies and they want to give the world a big hug and they just want to make this available to everybody and that doesn't always work because you have to pay the rent. You can you can give the world a big hug and you can do that thing. It depends on the the life that you want, right? So if they're like living in a van down by the river, then that's extremely sustainable as long as they can afford to keep malpractice in their license. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like go live in the woods and don't have any overhead and hug the whole world and give them free acupuncture. And I take no issue with it. Me specifically, I want a convertible Mercedes. So it's like I have to be able to do something that sustains my convertible Mercedes. And you have no shame about that. I have no it's, shame it's not, about Yeah, that. it's not like you're a greedy capitalist that you're taking advantage of the population. You can call me a greedy capitalist, though. You should. Because, because here's the thing. There are greedy capitalists within acupuncture. And I know, I know I don't think I'm one, and I'm pretty confident you don't think I'm one. But on the spectrum of, like, shrewd with money, I'm further than you. And we should be dicks to the, the people that are, like, doing poor medicine but making buku money but we can figure that out for another day. But then I feel like on the other end, like not only are there like the hippies that want to give the whole world a hug, you have other people that they're like, I just want a three day weekend or it's like they're six months into their practice and then they take two weeks off to go to Burning Man. And then they come back and they're surprised that half of their patient load is gone. So I can only respond to that from the ox nature and nothing bothers me more than that. And probably my emotions surrounding that, because that's what they are, are completely wrong. And people should do whatever they want with their life. But in my, in my world, that is, they're, they are transactionally asking for a lifestyle that they see and want. Like they, they want a home and they want financial stability. And they are willing to work for it, but they are not applying the appropriate terms to work for it. So the thing that I would kind of tell 
like prospective students, future acupuncturists, people getting ready to educate or people getting ready to graduate is be prepared to work harder than you've ever worked because you are, you are in a growing field. There are a lot of people that do this anywhere. There's 30 practice practitioners in our city, right? And we're a little tiny town. You also have people that you want to come see you that don't necessarily believe in what you do. So you had better be ready to put in day and night, the marketing, the opening the doors and turning on the lights and keeping the storefront up, the social media, the advertising, the marketing, the business strategy. It is nothing but torture. And so little of it is the happiness and the love. But for me, that works out real well. So before you talked about your herbal pharmacy, what percentage of your patients would you say are on herbs? At least three quarters. And that's raw herbs, right? Raw herbs. Zhang Jun Jing level raw herbs. So I feel like that was a thing in school that it was very difficult, one, to convince people to take herbs, and number two, to get people to follow through with herbs. How did you get that high level of patient compliance with herbs? So one part of this is easy. If somebody, like when people walk into our clinic, typically they've been down the allopathic side of things, right? And they're, they're literally willing to try anything. Basically, if anybody's had dry needling done to them, they're going to drink D-Long. It just doesn't, they're going to try it. So to some extent, the, the nastiness of the herbs is okay or more okay because of the level of discomfort that they're trying to change or the fact that they have tried everything else. Nobody is going to go after Gusha Juyutong step one, right? So two is that we cook the herbs for the people, right? We boil them, put them into mason jars. We take the hard work out of it. So I, compliancy wise, I found it impossible to give people a, a Ziploc of raw herbs and have them cook them and drink them consistently. They do it one time, right? So, but cooking the herbs and giving them a weekly supply not only allows us to increase compliancy tenfold, but also the people are coming back on a a kind of like a weekly rotation to pick up their week's worth of herbs. And this allows us to check in with them, see how they're doing, see if there's any modifications we need to go and so on and so forth. And that keeps the effect of the herbs working significantly higher. So I, I don't do patents, right? And I, I have nothing, I have nothing against people that practice with patents, but just as maybe NSAIDs, like, like acetaminophen isn't for everyone, that little pill with shaoyasan might need to be modified for every other person, right? So with, with our clinic, we get that opportunity to fine-tune things. And in that fine-tuning, we see dramatic results. So I'm thinking that a lot of times when I interact with patients, I have certain scripts in the back of my head where it's like, this is how the needles work, this is how often you should come back, things like that. What does your conversation with patients about herbs, what does that look like? Honestly, you're maybe like super candid about this. Okay, so typically I will tell people the the way that this conversation starts is I tell them that within Chinese medicine, we have this thing called the eight pillars of diagnosis, right? And so when the person walks in, we start going through these eight pillars. Is this person yin? Is this person yang? Is this this a cold pattern? Is this a hot pattern? And one of those pillars is, is this excess or is this deficiency? And so I would say, for argument's sake, 50% of people are excess. They've got the, the, the headache, right, the high blood pressure headache. And 50% of the people are deficiency. They've got the, uh, I don't know why I'm dizzy, and they have no blood. So 
I will be extremely candid with people and say, like, you are deficient. When I do acupuncture to you to make to make an argument simple, I'll say this is a this is like a closed system. I'm working with the energy that's inside of you to make you better. If you have overdrafted your bank account, can I pay a bill with what you got in there? And so the, the answer is typically no. And so I'll say, you know, with acupuncture, I can probably elicit some kind of change for three days, maybe five days. But then you're going to have to, like, think about coming back for acupuncture. And that model of healthcare, while in the long term, if I could get them to come back every three or five days for, like, six months, it might be super sustainable and change their body. But if I want to do it quicker or more efficiently in my world – I might say, you know, I can I can significantly increase your potential to get good if I put energy in. And we put that energy in in the form of herbal medicine. If you are deficient in blood and I give you acupuncture, I'm going to convince your body to make more blood, but it doesn't have the raw material. It doesn't have the things that it needs. And with the herbs, I can do even more to do that. And in, in Kentucky, in the Midwest – People seem to want to do it. Yeah, and I think I've heard you say that before where it's like acupuncture can help move the chi, but if you want to add more energy to the system, then we need something substantial like herbs. So I'm, I'm one of those people that like went and worked in China, right, at, at Beijing – or no, sorry, at Sichuan and Chengdu. And this was the way that they practice and it instilled in me a sense that if I don't practice this way – it is it is at least detrimental to the philosophy that I'm living by. And it's not to say that people that don't practice herbs are wrong. It's just I want a full herbal pharmacy. I want to prescribe herbs in that pattern and I want to use them. And for us, we've we've been lucky in that people are super compliant with it and we've been very successful at it. One more thing before I have to go pee. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in practice or what's something that you wish you knew when you started? Go get a fucking new job. Let me think. I actually didn't. No, I knew you were going to ask this and I should have thought about it. Be extremely prepared to commit yourself to a very hard and rigorous uphill battle with that meme in mind that success is not a straight line, right? It's going to have the squiggle line. And in that time, do not forget the yangsheng for yourself. And do not forget to continue to learn because any acupuncture school, any Chinese medical school anywhere in the world does not prepare you enough. And it is not their job to. Their job is to get you to pass a test. And that's very straightforward. But for you to be successful and to and, – and in successful, I mean in, for you to successfully treat people, you need to consistently keep learning and honing your skill and that takes years. So do not expect whatever figure income you want to come easily and to come quickly. So would you say this is something that if you want to succeed and if you want to make this work, you have to love the medicine? Like if you're just in this for the money or if you're just in this to do something different, you're going to fall on your face? I think that you have to love it. I think that you have to believe in it. And I think that you have to live it. I definitely think there are people out there that can make whatever income they want from a like a marketing perspective and not actually practice the medicine and look really good but I don't believe that they will find happiness in themselves at the end of that road so we'll just call that the end of part one we actually kept talking for several more hours and got progressively more inebriated but we'll save that for part two if any of that audio is actually usable 
Show notes for this episode are available at podcast.tcmstudy.net slash session seven. Special thank you to the Patreon members for supporting this podcast. There are actually monthly expenses associated with producing this podcast, both hosting fees to actually host the podcast and also platform fees to record high quality audio interviews over the internet. Hopefully this sounds better than your typical Zoom call. So thank you again to the Patreon members for your support and contributions. If you're not a member and would like to join them in supporting this podcast, head on over to podcast.tcmstudy.net and click on the donate button at the top. And special thank you to you for listening to this podcast and being here with us. We'll see you next time.